Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. This is the Irish Times second captain's podcast with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. Hello there, Owen. Hi, Kieran. The idea of GA teams pinning up incendiary quotes from the opposition on the dressing room wall has been around probably since the day the GA was formed. Murphy. Michael like Cusick it. himself. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd say something up. I've pinned up. Well, I don't know what he would have pinned up. Some sort of uh, pro-British cricket something or other, I'm sure. He wasn't a fan of cricket. Not a big fan of cricket at all, actually. So um, I presume that's what he would have been pinning up. But certainly, to inspire one, one must always be pinning something up mm. on the wall. And uh, we joke here, but I uh, have a sneaking suspicion this is still done more often than is possibly mm. uh, accepted at top-level J. But I wonder, do referees employ a similar tactic? And I ask this because Cork manager Brian Cuthbert, ahead of Sunday's All-Ireland quarterfinal against Mayo, has said this week, I think the referee is going to be very important in this game. I wouldn't want to paint our fellas as naive young fellas. But certainly they're up against a team that's extremely streetwise. One of his selectors went into even more detail, which we'll get into in a little bit. But Cormac Riley's referees room, do you reckon it's plastered with these quotes? Mm. Talking to his umpires. This is, what, this is what we're going out now to face, let's. This sort of crack. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what's to be served. I mean, what can Cormac Riley do? Just ref better? You know, it's not like he's going to stitch it into Cork because Cork, have, he would never do that. All, he's, all he can Blow do... Blow that whistle louder. Yeah, all he can do is just ref like he's never refed before. Mm. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, a little bit of inspiration like that. I mean, he's going to be impartial anyway. So maybe just a little bit of inspiration like that can... Run that a little bit harder, blow the whistle, whistle a little bit louder. Although this is a big deal in Mayo, Murph. I know you've been following oh, the yeah. reaction there. They're oh, not yeah. happy at all with Cuthbert <laughs> and his selectors. Yeah, so like Brian Cuthbert said that, that's, you know, that's fine. A clunky enough attempt. At Mayo or streetwise. You know, they're, they're a streetwise team. And uh, I follow a lot of Mayo people on Twitter. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> but I mean, I like more than, you know, my fair share. Mm-hmm. I follow a lot of Mayo people on Twitter. And... Uh, they were getting very upset about this. And I was just putting myself, you know, Goaler at the same stage now as Mayo. And I was just trying to think if, Ker- if Eamon Fitzmaurice had said something like that about Goaler, we'd be like, oh, that's kind of nice, isn't it? <laughs> we're no longer the, the innocents. You know, we actually, we're a streetwise team. That's good. That's a good news story. And we'd leave it at that. But um, yeah, our Mayo brethren are very upset about this. Don't like that at all. Um, yeah, I mean, Niall Cahillan was brought into one ar- ar- argument in particular. Right. As in, Damien Cahillan's dad was really dirty, so 
I don't know what you're talking about. So I, I don't really know that this that's the level all that relevant. I don't know that that's really all that relevant to, to this Sunday, but nevertheless. It has been a good week for juicy pre-match quotes, largely because we never get these no. anymore because never. of the practice of pinning them up on walls. But we have one this week from... Now, we know the Armagh team wouldn't dream of adding any more fuel to their farm. No, or no that's definitely no, not their style. Not their style at all. They're open. They're honest with the media. They don't foster any sort of us against the world mentality or yep. any of those things but if they were of a mind to turn that way at this stage they could check out Kevin Riley's answer to a question about their manager Paul Grimley now Gavin Comiskey reported this in the Irish Times Grimley was involved in the Meath setup with Seamus McEnany a few years back so Riley's asked about him and you're you know the usual you have to say something polite mm. whether or not you believe it and he says hmm Paul I suppose he was in with Seamus on and off over the year yeah, when he was in with us, he did his best to try and get the best out of us, I suppose. Yeah. End quote. <laughs> Cue laughter from those in the room because it was quite clear that he was trying his best to follow the, to the letter of the law, the yeah. idea that you don't say anything negative, but didn't sound like Kevin Riley had a hugely positive experience with Paul No. Kennedy. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Or just mm, sort of mumble your way through. And Kevin yeah. Riley's a good talker, as, as far as I'm aware as well. So it's probably a tricky, <laughs> tricky enough one for him. Well, I mean, like, that's, that to me is a lot juicier than what Brian Cuthbert said about the referee. Because Cuthbert is just trying to influence the referee. Are we, I mean, I, I think Kevin Riley didn't say anything there, but I think he said a lot. Yeah, and, and Gareth, in fairness... It's almost unfair that you're the fact that you think this makes more of an impact because clearly Kevin Wright is just answering a question mm. uh, as uh, as much politely as, he, as, as politely he as he can. Whereas what Cork seemed to be doing is something a little bit more orchestr- orchestrated. Yeah, yeah. It's well, the orchestration of it alone lessens its impact. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Basically, I mean, if they're you know if it's a calculated attempt to put a couple of names in the referee's mind, then I suppose. Yeah, it, it immediately lessens his impact. Decent efforts by Riley and Cuthbert, but if they want to learn how to hype an event, they could do with taking a look at Conor McGregor. This was a story that has been bubbling away for the past year or two, but really exploded at the O2 earlier this month. That event, that fight night, reached 600,000 viewers on 3E. The venue sold out straight away and could have sold out a few times over. We hear the general reaction was absolutely incredible, and I'm sure you saw it at the time. The amount of hype created is something that fascinates me in part because it looks disproportionate to what McGregor has actually achieved so far. His next fight is against Dustin Poirier in Las Vegas on September 27th. And Poirier himself says, listen, this is talking to journalists and UFC people, you guys built this guy into being a giant. The guy's only got three fights in the UFC. If he wasn't representing Ireland, he'd be on an undercard. So it's it's a funny one in that McGregor seems to have mastered one part of enter- the entertainment part of sport, which so many sports people never get to. And now he has to, it's almost the cart before the horse and he has to prove that he has what it takes. Everyone, clearly he's done brilliantly so far and he's winning his fights and generally he's winning in impressive fashion. But it just, uh, there's a concern with any sportsman that they can be hyped up a little bit too quickly. And this is something that we will explore today. It's one of the areas I'm going to explore with John Kavanagh, who is a fascinating man in his own right. He's largely responsible for the growth of UFC, I should say of MMA in this country to the point that UFC have gotten interested enough to stage events here. He's one of the most respected coaches in the game. Coach McGregor and three other winning fighters at the O2. And I'm looking forward to having him in studio a little bit later on today. But Ushi McConville and Anthony Moyles are in right now. Guys, thanks for calling into us. Thanks, Owen. We were talking elsewhere in the show about Conor McGregor and how to hype a sporting event. Is Brian Cuthbert taking a leaf out of the UFC manual, Ushin? <laughs> I think yeah, I think that Cork really have sort of spiced it up as much as Cork can possibly spice uh, a game like this up. 
if I was Cork, I'd be a lot more worried about the, their inefficiencies elsewhere on the football field rather than trying to, you know, take the Alex Ferguson uh, look at things and try and w- uh, wind the opposition up or uh, somehow influence the referee because, um, you know, it, it just it runs deeper than that with Cork, uh, I think. Uh, you know, again, for Paul Kerrigan to come out and say about the fact that, you know, they trade this out and then what you know to trade this new defensive system out for this one of the selectors to come out then and say that this was nothing new to Cork that they traded out the year before against Donegal in the league. Right. Well, that's fair enough. But that's a year ago. It was under different management. Um, you know, so that just shows you the you know the base. It gives me a, a real indication of where Cork are at. And I noticed that the two boys here have gone very, very quiet because I know they've <laughs> tipped them uh, at the start of the year. But I just look at the Cork, you know, have a real opportunity to completely turn around their season this weekend against, uh, you know, one of the two best teams in the country. And um, But I just don't think it's possible for them. As I say, I just think they're too... Uh, they're too... I think they're too bogged down now in the fact that, you know, they have been so poor... Um, so far, they haven't really. There's no real enthusiasm. There's no re- renewed vigor. I don't think the new management has given them that pep and the step that normally that a new management gives you. And uh, for me, they have looked a bit same same over the last couple of years, and then leading into this year. Is it a sign of desperation, maybe, Ushin, when management come out and start putting pressure on the referee like this? Because we mentioned Cuthbert there, then the selector Ronan McCarthy. Uh, elaborated and talked about specific players. Killian O'Connor, Kevin McLaughlin says that they're very good scorers, but they're also very good in committing clever fouls that go unnoticed. Is it, it certainly seems a bit clunky from the from the managers here. It's obviously some sort of a, a tactic that they're employing, but would you agree with Ushin that maybe they should be more focused on getting their game plan right? Um, well, I or, just, or do you enjoy all this I stuff? disagree with Ushin. Come yeah. on, this is it. <laughs> I hope, I hope we've murdered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is the week ever. No, I just think that I think going back to Cutford, right, I think he actually did give Cork a decent pep in their step during the league. You know, a lot of people coming in, and this is what amazes me about kind of the Cork situation. Before the Cork-Kerry game, everyone was writing off Kerry. Like Kerry were an ah, pass us, you know, lost a lot of players. Cork were the up-and-coming team, good young forwards, you know, playing a new style of football. Obviously a disaster against Kerry. And I have to say... I thought they redeemed themselves to a certain degree against Sligo the last day. Sligo weren't up to much. But he redeemed himself in a way that he was willing to actually change things around. Now, I know he had to change things around. But it seems to suit the players a bit more. Um, I think he's using every advantage he can. uh, And I think it's actually a smart enough move by him. Like, I mean, I think regardless of who the referee is, if a referee reads that or if a referee is told about it, it might be just sitting there in the back recesses of his so mind. So you like these Alex Ferguson type tactics? It's actually, rugby is probably the sport where this is employed most because the ref has such an influence and you're constantly hearing managers Well, I think, <laughs> look, as, as Ushin is correct in the sense of, you know, obviously they're focused on what, on what they're trying to do themselves, but he's probably looked at certain areas of the Mayo situation and he's gone, okay, we need to match up here, match up there. But then he's probably had a bit of a cut at something that no, one, no team has ever said about Mayo. Like, I have never heard a manager 
come out about that against Mayo. You've, I've heard it, and I've probably said it before about uh, certain teams, especially Dublin, the way they foul you as you're coming out, just to slow it down and be able to get men back. Obviously, people have said it about Donegal. I think in Joe the past. Broly said it about Mayo, but that's a different thing, really, because we're talking about managers here as opposed to pundits. Yeah, I think managers is the thing. I don't think anyone has ever come out and said, "Oh, well, Kevin McLaughlin, you know, is a real a serial fouler." You know, that's one thing that you wouldn't put that lad down for. So. Um, I think it's a new it's 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 a new it's a new paradigm to it. It's something that changes the whole thing, and it probably just probably it, it, it gives, as I say, somewhere in the back of the referee's mind, will it be two or three frees that he gives against Mayo? Possibly. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's all, it all contributes to the white noise in the referee's head, particularly when Donegal have you know Mayo and Donegal were involved in a, a spat before the quarterfinal last year as well. I mean, if enough managers say it, and I, I would say if if Cuthbert was dreaming this up. And no one had ever said it about, and Mayo had never been involved in a situation like this before. Then what I don't know Donegal, how effective it would be. I know, I remember the spat, but what were Donegal? Well, basically, they were both stage? saying uh, they were both saying Donegal had come out. Jim McGuinness had said after the Gallagher tackle in the Ulster final that you know Donegal players need to be protected. Horn had a bite, McGuinness had a bite back, and it it it, it that was kind of part of the build up to the quarterfinal last year. Mm. And if it's if it's part of to the build up to the quarterfinal this year as well. Then maybe a referee does, you know. I think it all feeds in. They're, they're actually You're not human. convinced, Oshin. No, I, one of the things is that at that time, Donegal were all Ireland champions. Okay, that's one thing. So I don't know if there's enough substance behind Cork just yet. I think it's actually a distraction for players. I actually think that uh, going into this game, they don't read the papers, Oshin. <laughs> <Apparently. They do. laughs> but I think the the biggest thing for me going into this game is Cork just need to get themselves right get that even let's walk on a siege mentality in Cork everybody's against us you know we'll get we got some serious stick they're coming on they're, we're getting stick on social media and all that sort of thing use something like that but keep it in house keep it so that you come up to Dublin on that bus and it's you against absolutely everybody I'm more convinced now, having having read what I read in the last couple of days, that Mayo will will I don't know say a walk over the top of, but they will they will beat Cork convincingly because if this is what they're resorting to, and the fact is, there's very little substance behind what Cork have done this year. Very little substance. And Mayo are saying nothing of note that we've noticed so far, anyway, which is probably they're saying great. nothing of note, and, and I honestly think that they're the team that have that have that have tamed their run. Just about right. I think the quota for teams with siege mentality is probably used up at this stage. So <laughs> I, think, I think you have to go pre-championship. We're all done. Yeah, we're all done. One, one county in particular is <laughs> hogging it this year, I think. But uh, Mayo's, is there any chance that maybe Mayo will be lulled into a, a false sense of security by how poor Cork have been? Whatever about what people are saying. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. I, I, like, I, mean, I don't think they walk all over them. Um, I was impressed with Cork and how he set up the other day. They kicked 20-odd points, 20, I think, four points against Sligo. They possibly could have got three goals if they really wanted to, maybe four goals. They could have kicked a few more. Um, that's, that's a lot of scoring. And I know, you know Sligo aren't, aren't Mayo. But at the same time, I think with Collins and O'Driscoll playing this kind of a, of a role where they go into the defence and then they look to break, it gives Cadigan, Shields, these guys, uh, Galvin, a lot more protection. Um, Aidan Walsh was in and out, new young lad in midfield. Gould did really well when he came into midfield. I just thought Kerrigan running the line of that half-forward line is a massive threat. Now, 
Sligo were deficient in that area, whereas Mayo will have Colin Boyle, I'd say, to pick him up. So that's speed versus speed and strength versus strength. So I just think, I still don't think Mayo have brought anything new to the party this year. You know, they've, they, you know, they've the same, Killian O'Connor, they're massively reliant on him. Andy Moran and Dylan just aren't setting it alight at the moment. And you're kind of going back to the same well all the time. You know, it really, you know, he started with the young O'Shea lad um, and he started with some new guys and then they got dropped. So, you know, he just hasn't unearthed someone that's really gone, wow, this is a guy who's going to kick five or six points for me now this year. This is a fellow who I can really rely on. He's, he's, he's a marquee forward. <laughs> but, you know, he's another guy in that Killian O'Connor vein. Yeah. And I just don't think he has unearthed that. Now, maybe someone will come through these last few games, but... That's where I would worry about it. Like Mayo struggles sometimes with that kind of defensive setup. They struggle against Roscommon. Um, you know, Galway didn't really do it to a certain degree. And I think they're, they're going to find this is, an, this is a, new, a different Cork animal. And Cork have an absolute shot to nothing here. Oshin, just on Mayo there. Yeah, I just think the only thing about, I would say about Mayo, we're talking about a completely different game this weekend because you go into Crow Park. And whether people like it or not, for anybody who hasn't played in Crow Park, run out in Crow Park... It basically takes on an absolute life of its own. It's a new life. It's a different place completely to play football. Very, very difficult to break down that Roscommon defence in Hyde Park, mm. I think. Very well set up, very well organised. Okay, they maybe didn't prove it against Armagh. But in that particular day, they were very much up for the game. They are very well organised. You try and do that in Crow Park, on, the likes of Mayo will run, run, will run over the top of you because they've got no more pace. They've got more stability strength in their team. Size, yeah, yeah, strength and size. And I like uh, Moran, O'Shea, and O'Shea on the, on, on the, on the 40 for... Um, for for Mayo, I think they just look a better balanced team or something. There's something, something. I know they haven't brought something really new, but they look slightly stronger up front to me this well, year. That's the one thing they have brought new, and that's a massive plus. Is Aidan O'Shea at eleven because he can come for kickouts, yeah, if he wants, or he can just come in and absolutely horse around the middle of the field and pick up breaks. Like the amount of breaks he, he picked up, goal, against he goal. seems yeah, to be enjoying it as well. Just by, by how he's playing, and but how it's he's a difficult speaking. position though for for a six, right? Because you're, you're thinking if I go with him for kickouts, all he needs is a flick yeah. on, and the whole centre of the defence is opened up, you know. And then you have runners either side. If you sit back, which the Galway man did, well, then all of a sudden you're conceding possession more than likely to it, and then he's just picking out passes. <laughs> and do you know who's very important to all of that stuff that happens is Killian O'Connor. When you see Killian O'Connor, matter whether he's scored or he's kicked the wide, he's coming out and he's pointing. He wants people to pick up. They, what they did against Galway was they split, so sort of halfway between the full forward yeah. and centre, and the two corner forwards come in, and it means that three players are able to mark four, and as a result of that, Aidan O'Shea has got a free roll. So as soon as that ball goes up in the air, he's he turns done. on his heel, and he's he's away hunting that break. That's what you want from your marquee forward, Killian O'Connor, <laughs> Murph. But uh, <laughs> Kerry, God, if you're playing the uh, the second captain's bingo, everyone back <laughs> off marquee forward now. <laughs> The Kerry Galway uh, build up to this. I think the most interesting thing has been said not by anyone from either camp, but Darrow Shea wrote in his Irish Times column this week about the Galway midfield, and he said people place a lot of store in their midfield pair, uh, but the long and short of, the, of it is that they were horsed out of it by Barry Moore and the two O'Sheas. They won't. That won't always be the case, but it's where they're at right now, which is uh, pretty strong stuff coming from somebody who knows the position like Darrow Shea. Are people getting a bit too carried away with the these two? 
what I've these two guys who I think have been pretty impressive in most of their games so far. Not a very exciting players. Like I mean, he's probably just saying physically they need to develop a little bit more. Um, but they showed last weekend what they're about up against uh, another young type of up and coming midfield pairing, and they mm. probably gave Tipperary their fill of it. Um, no, they're very exciting. I think they are, like, I mean, a lot of the engine room comes from that middle field, that midfield section, and, you know, your 8, 9, and 11 for Galway. That's key. Um, six, they, again, they have been weak at, and they need, to, they need to solve that this weekend because an awful lot of problems are coming straight down the middle for Galway. Um, and if they can solve that, they're in with a shout. But um, it's, again, strange. Kerry with Johnny Buckley and the whole kind of messing around with him, kind of really starting at half forward, but yet coming for kickouts. A lot of the time um, I'm sure Galway will try and arrange some kind of plan for that but anything down the middle these two lads can fetch with anyone Murph are you worried about the well I am you know because the, the two guys are going to be playing there for you know as long as they want it for Galway yeah. like they're very very good players but you are talking about a different stratosphere altogether and like they're they're at under 21 level they looked exceptional and that's kind of the level that they're still at to be honest they haven't moved on to but I mean this is you know it's not like you know, you come, you arrive in uh, in a team at corner forward or cornerback fully formed and you mm. can say to a 19-year-old, to a 20-year-old, just go and perform. You know, mm. when you're talking about playing at midfield, it's actually not even so much how much weight they can actually put on or how much bigger they can get. It's actually just that hardness that comes from being, you know, up against, you know, Paul. you look at Paul McGrain, Kevin Welsh, Darrell O'Shea, like all those guys probably made their intercounty debuts very young, mm. but you're talking about three or four years into their career before you could ever say that they were top class, really top class midfielders. So that, that's where they are, and I think Dara is harsh, but I actually I think he's absolutely right as well, to be honest, you know. And uh, now it's it's not that Carrier massively strong at midfield, oh. um, and I think that you know in that respect. Go, you know, Galway could be up against worse teams. You know, Mayo are about as good as they are as is out there from a, the the midfield point of view. But I just think that Kerry just have it's not it's not the two guys they're up against. It's Buckley and Declan O'Sullivan who are actually really going to hurt them this weekend uh, on Sunday more so than yeah. Than, Barr and, yeah. 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 But uh, there is this creeping unease, O'Sheen, about how good Kerry are yeah. through no fault of their own they did what they did and just in the week since everyone's thinking well they what can't. do we see there yeah, yeah what do we see they can't be that good yeah the only thing I would say about Kerry is that regardless of what Cork were going to do that day they seem to be a team that were, that were very very aware of what their game plan was mm. and how they were going to execute that and follow that through and I think when you're a team and you're when you're like a team like Kerry uh, aiming for tomorrow's getting away from the traditional stuff uh, you know, would have been taking a little bit of flack probably. Um, but to be able to execute that plan, believe in what you're doing, for the players to believe in it and to, and to, to perform it the way they did against Cox says a lot about about Kerry and mm. and their attitude. And I I liked everything I've seen about, about Kerry out there. I absolutely love watching them yeah. uh, because regardless of whether defensive, they're the best team probably in the competition at transforming. Uh, defence to attack very very quickly um, even as good as Dublin I think because one thing that Kerry used as well is good kick passing yeah. and which which eradicates a lot of the nonsense yeah, which is all so, in the middle uh, third uh, of the field. and I guess if you're managing Kerry what you want to do is build on those traditional strengths but change it up as you yeah. said there what, I, what has impressed me maybe most about Fitzmaurice so far is that he decided last year 
these open training sessions are ridiculous. Anyone can come and see what we're doing. I'm trying to change. Maybe that was fine 10 years ago when Kerry, everyone knew what Kerry was going to do anyway. But he took a bit of stick for that, put out a sort of open letter to the supporters saying, just bear with us, explaining the reasons. And then as soon as they started getting results, I think maybe supporters started coming around a little bit, which is an impressive thing. That he generally seems to carry himself quite well. But how convinced are you by his team? I, I think he's. I think he's a very intelligent manager. I think he's smart. I think he's horses for courses as well. You know, like I mean, you take Dublin last year. You know, and what he did and how he identified where they can actually have weaknesses. That's what you want from a manager. You know, like you want that from a manager and his management team. Um, with all the analysis these days, there's always a deficiency somewhere. And. Uh, put it this way, this isn't going to be an eight points to six game or, you know, 10-8. Like, this could be an absolute shootout. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you'll be going seriously long on goals in yeah. this game. It could be because both teams have serious sets of forwards and the defence is a little bit question mark, you know, questionable in both teams. Like, I mean, the full-back line is probably questionable for, for, for Kerry. Um, but he is. He's, he, he's smart. And probably with a team that isn't really up there over the last, say, 10 years... I think he's really, really building a smart team, and he, you know, he had the he had the, the the big hit of losing Gooch at the start of the year. Yet he said to himself, "Okay, well, you know, I'll deal with that, and I'll unearth something else, or we'll just we'll try to find somewhere else, or someone else can play in that role." And what I thought what he did with Declan Sullivan the last day mm. was fantastic. Like, I mean, that was a role that Sullivan would always have stayed around eleven, you know, between thirty forty meters from goal. But to go back into that role and then just spray passes, follow up the play was brilliant. Yeah, he killed us in two thousand and eight. Um, like. Had an amazing mm. game that day, and I think uh, goalie people still remember that. There's still like a yeah, huge torrential downpour. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a huge respect for Declan O'Sullivan mm. uh, in Galway, and I think maybe there might be a part of us that would say, right, well, let's have him out there where he, where he can't hurt us. But to be honest, the way he played against Cork was just he was just brilliant that day, absolutely brilliant. So I mean, I think that that's the like they have guys like that, and you know, goalies just don't have that yet. You know, so. This is a, you were saying about how Cork have a shot to nothing. This is a real shot to nothing for Galway. Mm. As long as as long as we don't get hammered, I think it's you know we'll see it as progress. And these guys are going to be a year older next year. And you know there's at least this year there's a real feeling that right that's just about the Galway team. That's about the best we have. Throw Gary Sice back in there. Hopefully when if we can get that sorted out, Michael Mean might be back next year. Let's go with this team. Like and that's. That's a positive thing, at least from Goldless's point of view, if nothing else. All right, I do want to just ask about the qualifiers. Armand Mead, in particular, is of interest at this table. Lushin, you wrote in your... <laughs> I like the looks that you two are shooting <laughs> each other at the moment. It doesn't quite come across on radio, but there you go. Uh, your GA.ie column you, this week, you uh, made the point that Mead used to provide Armand with some fairly tasty challenge matches over the years. Yeah, we used to, we used to have to go to uh, Mead's... Uh, it was usually... Uh, around two, three weeks before we played in the championship, we used to get absolutely slaughtered in every facet of the game. <laughs> we used to get battered up and down the pitch, and then we used to get a hammer. And the management structure that we used to have at the time used to think this was a great idea to bring us back down to earth before we played in the championship. Whereas, in actual fact, you're devoid of any sort of confidence. <laughs> we're talking late nineties here, are we? Yeah, like we're talking late nineties and. Oh my God! Was it a battle? And our boys, a lot of our boys used to love the fact that we were going up there because it just—it was just a hammer match. The referee let absolutely everything go, and, and like, you loved as it as well, Oshin. Yeah, I absolutely hated it. I was about ten and a half stone at the time. <laughs> uh, I was basically just there to take to take free kicks, and because of the referee that we had, there was no free kicks. <laughs> uh, so I, <laughs> I <You were> hard earned. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
I used to try to pull a hammy in the in the in the warm up, <laughs> but I knew it wasn't going to get away with that. But honestly, they were battles. They were monstrous battles. And it does tie into what I want to talk about this week, which is Mead's toughness, which has been brought into question. Maybe it was even their size, their physicality, all those things against Dublin. And they're playing in our mad team, who are ominously starting to show those qualities again, and they haven't had them for a number of years. You can look at that two ways. This could be a really tough one for me. There could be the type of game that should bring the best out of them mentally and physically. Yeah, I'd be worried about this game. Really? Um, yeah, because I think Armagh, our, you know, Ushin's right. I remember we'd, we we had an opening of a pitch in Kiltail. Remember that challenge game? And it was absolutely, like, everyone was playing. Ushin was playing, McGeaney was playing. I can't remember what year it was. But we were going bad at the time. And literally, there was, there was all at war. There was probably a good... I think he's beat us that day as well. I think we came back to beat you, yeah. But it was like fifteen hundred kids maybe in the place, you know, all, and it was just like kind Country of castles, all that. <laughs> yeah, all and that it was literally shield your eyes, children, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, I you put it staff is all good, all, all fair. But no, I think that's what Armagh has definitely progressed back to. Big, strong, but now very, very athletic men. You know, fellas who can cover ground really quickly. Um, and also, I think in the last six to 12 months, their ball skills have got an awful lot better. So not only are they good athletes and, and, and decent fellas, they're actually well able to move the ball, shift the ball. Armagh were always, I remember Boylan years ago just said, one thing you don't do is you don't bring the ball into the tackle in Armagh. Just get, you know, as you come to a man, move it off. Just don't bring the ball. Because they had a brilliant ability, whether you practice it massively, I don't know, of stripping the ball in the tackle. They wouldn't just, they wouldn't just hold you up. They'd actually hit you and then come down and actually strip the ball. They were one of the first teams to do that. And invariably, and you saw it the last day against Roscommon, Roscommon continuously bringing the ball into tackle and just getting stripped. And slowly Boom. as well. And slowly, yeah. exactly, with no pace. So what do Mead have to do here? They need to keep it very wide. Absolutely. I'd have both corner forwards literally sitting on the sidelines and try and spread Armagh as much as possible and then use pace to try and go through Armagh. That's the only thing to do. If they get fi- into a physical battle with Armagh, I think, won't work. I think that's the thing that Mead do have, though. I think Mead have maybe an extra little bit of pace that maybe Armagh don't have. Especially around that that middle third, we we've we've unearthed a fella called Aaron Finden to play in the middle of the field a little bit like the goal, but he's just playing. He's, he's sort of learned his trade and stuff like out there. But um, the one thing that maybe we don't have is just that little bit of edge and that little bit of pace. And I watched uh, Meath and, and against Kildare this year, and I thought that was the one thing that they sort of had in abundance was that bit of pace. And they look good enough to me. It's not a game that, that Armagh's going into. Well, it's not a game certainly that I will be attending and saying Armagh's going to win this game convincingly or anything like that. I'd be worried about this game. You know, I think I think it's an absolute 50-50. You know, it's a toss of a coin between these two teams. Um, You're ruining my next question because I want to start predictions now. Okay, sorry. Anthony, you start. <laughs> well, no, just with your, with your 50-50 toss of a coin, I need definite answers. Give him, give him 10 seconds to think <laughs> yeah. about that where it lands. Very, very quickly, we'll start with Armagh Mead. I think retribution, I think Mead will do uh, it. All right, retribution. I'm go Armagh by a point. Armagh by a point. Uh, Kildare Monaghan, which we haven't really talked about, but Monaghan, Monaghan, Monaghan. Right. So, apologies to our Kildare Monaghan listeners for the <laughs> brevity of our analysis in that game. That preview again, Monaghan. <laughs> <laughs> Ker- <And> Mayo, <laughs> Kerry Galway, no Kerry. shock there. Kerry, and I don't think anyone's foreseeing a shock between Cork and Mayo. Are they? Well, the two boys probably are Mayo. Well, it's the winners of the Ireland final. The winners <laughs> will come from this game. Yeah, uh, yeah three of us. Yeah. Three of us. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that they've met now. There's a lot yeah. of reputations on the line. It's the real Ireland final. <laughs> we're going to see on Sunday. Just remember that. So Mayo, Mayo, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Finally, Cork have been dropped from um, from the Anthony Moyles roster they here. They've never to change horses in midstream, uh, uh, Mosey, but did that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I don't know. We'll leave it at well, that. What though. did Mosey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my predictions are not important. Anthony, Oshie and Brilliant enjoy the football. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I know a butt whooping was coming at the back. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. James, James, James Tony is born. Iran Parker is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your information. I'm an alien. You should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Those challenge matches the lads talked about saying it like a spectacularly bad idea. Yeah. Uh, I cannot see even one reason why you would do such a thing. Harden your men up seemed to be the idea. Joe Kernan discontinued that yeah. practice, I believe. Yeah. Joe Kernan's probably not a bad manager. <laughs> I mean, there's the old Ireland, and now we could, alongside that, we can put discontinuing this really bad idea of going down to Meath, getting involved in numerous brawls, and getting beaten. I mean, I think I could see the point of it from Meath's point of view in that you're winning the game all the time. So if you win a game, then that's good for confidence. Bearing in mind, we're talking about Meath as All-Ireland champions at this point, and mm. Armagh's, at best, an up-and-coming team. Yeah, and I mean, maybe Meath like the fact that Armagh have a number of players, as Oshin was talking about there, that can, you know, handle themselves. So, you know, it's good for Meath's point of view. It toughens, it toughens them up while they're also winning games. Whereas for Armagh, it's just... Let's just see where we are in the pecking order by getting repeatedly hammered by All Ireland champions, or at least a team who's challenging for the All Ireland every year. I don't, re- I didn't really get it. Ushin didn't really seem to understand the thinking behind it either. It sounded like it did a lot of standing around up front, waiting to take yeah. freeze it, and were never awarded. If you watch the coverage of Conor McGregor's victory at the O2 earlier this month, or the notorious documentary on RT earlier this year, you'll have seen John Kavanagh by his side as he has been every step of the way. He's one of the most renowned coaches in Europe. John has been pushing this sport of MMA long before McGregor even came on the scene and certainly long before the UFC came to town. So he's in a perfect position to talk to us about what's been one of the most, I'd certainly say one of the most impactful sporting events of the year so far. John, thanks very much for calling into us. Yeah, uh, nice to be here. And congratulations on the success of all your fighters in the UFC fight night in Dublin uh, a few weeks back now. Um, I watched the Notorious documentary and at one point you compared fighters to artists who do a lot of their stuff behind the scenes and then finally get a chance to show off their work on nights like that. Was it pretty gratifying to see four of your guys show off their work? Uh, yeah, uh, very special night. You know, that what we achieved in that night is if you're if you're a coach of mixed martial arts, that's that's a dream come true. To have more than one guy on a UFC card of a UFC show in your hometown, being headlined and co-headlined and two guys debuting and all four win, all four stoppages. Um, I couldn't have written her any better. Was it a culmination of 
from your own point of view of what you've been working towards since you opened, I think your first full-time gym was in 2000. Does it feel a bit like that? Yeah, I remember um, the day before I'd, I'd done a, a status on my on my, on my uh, coach's page basically saying there's not a lot of jobs where you get to like a point, a culmination of, of like you said, it's uh, 12 or 13 years basically working at this and it all came to one point, July 19th. And we're either going to fall on our face or, or, or rise to the occasion. And, uh, you know, my guys got in there with, with a pretty heavy opposition from the States and Brazil and what have you, where where, where we do the tradition be called the strong points. Um, all my guys are always being asked, not so much anymore now, but war being asked, so when are you going to move to America for the real training? <laughs> and we brought them all over and they all went home. <laughs> we sent them back in, you know, and um, yeah. so delighted which is an amazing success story but there's nothing inevitable about these kind of things can you take us back to your own starting point how you became interested in this whole area uh yeah um i was in college uh studying engineering and i saw basically come across a video it's i've told the story a lot of times that uh, ufc won i didn't know it was actually real or not i, I told him i didn't be like wwe um but anyway i got it watched it and that was a, that was a friday evening on Saturday, I got a few friends together and we started headlocking each other trying to figure out what these guys are doing. Um, it feels like a blink, but, you know, that was almost uh, almost 20 years, 17 years ago, I guess, now. Uh, 17 years later, I bring the UFC to my hometown and have my guys win it. <laughs> it's amazing. From the point of competing, was it something... It's, it obviously gripped you straight away there, as as you mentioned. Did you always see yourself as somebody who could teach it, who was going to be interested in the coaching side of things? Yeah, I've always been a teacher. I love teaching. Um, like, uh, I taught my mother how to use a computer. And, and when, when I was actually studying engineering, I w- was kind of in my mind when I graduated, I wanted to be a maths teacher. That was, uh, I just liked doing it. Even when, even when I was studying, I had a study uh, friend, um, John McNamara, and... I, I would be kind of helping him a little bit, you know, when we were studying together. So it was just something I enjoyed doing, showing, showing people how to do stuff. Now, when I started, um, it's, it's too formal to say when I started teaching MMA, because like I said, it was me and a group of guys headlocking yeah. each other. But I was the one that got the group together. So I was the one setting the time. I was the one saying, let's meet here. And I might have been fractionally better than they were. So I was kind of, okay, I think you do it this way, you know. Um, I had a kid brother at the time, and I used to grab him and pull him in different directions. And when he screamed, I realized that was a technique. <laughs> and then I'd go and teach that to the guys. So I guess I was always the guy kind of coaching the class. And you know, I did, I did a couple of fights and I was I did some competitions. But at the back of my mind, um, it was definitely the coaching slash teaching side that I enjoyed the most. It's funny how you talk about it in such an informal manner. At that point, did you see something in it that? Did you have a vision at that time or quite quickly afterwards that this can be something that can actually be very big in the country? I had no idea, to be honest. But what I did know was that I've I've done martial arts my whole life and I heard about martial arts being good for self-defense and good in fights, but I'd never seen it. I did a lot of different martial arts where we did these choreographed um, fight sequences. You step in, throw a punch, freeze, and then I do something cool. But every time I saw a real fight, I was like, well, that's all that they're going out the window. That that looks nothing like what I've been training. So I never felt confidence with it. Then I saw UFC 1, and it was Heist Gracie, a skinny little Brazilian going in there against much bigger guys, and it was a real fight. You know, it looked messy at the start. It didn't look like a Jackie Chan movie. But 
it was this guy using martial arts techniques and it looked like magic to me. He was making these big guys fall over and tap out and I was like, what the hell is this? So I didn't know there was going to be a business in it. Uh, you know, Even when I started getting pretty decent at this, I was still studying engineering, so I, I was going to be an engineer or, like I said, a maths teacher. Um, but I knew I had to get good at this. I was obsessed with it. And whether it led to a career or not, I was going to do this every day for the rest of my life. So you had that classic dilemma that people have sometimes. Do you follow your dream or do you... Forget about that and just do a normal job. Yeah, that's kind of fast forward a little bit. So when I graduated, um, I went for a job uh, with Boston Scientific. I was I was going to uh, be moving to Boston. And I was down to the last two. Um, and I don't know, I, was, I, I felt I was, when I was in the interview, I was leaning back in the chair while doing the interview. And I went to myself, why am I? It's like I felt I was sabotaging myself. Because it was kind of niggling away at the back of my head. I wanted to give this a shot. And uh, anyway, I didn't get the job. <laughs> My friend actually got the job. Right. Um, I actually heard that department closed down a few years later, so <laughs> maybe it's for the best. But I, um, I opened up my first gym, and I say that with large inverted commas. It would have been around about the size of this studio, um, it, not much bigger at all. And I brought my, I thought it was a palace. All I saw was like my own gym, you know. Yeah. There were six mats on the ground. It's it's kind of we all it's known and around the scene as the shed now. A lot of a lot of the big MMA guys, you know, like Andy Ryan and stuff like that, that has his own gym, very good team, Team Rhino. He started there and we we all kind of started there. And I uh, brought my I remember bringing my parents down to see it and you know, I was five years in college, I got a good degree, and then my mother saw I was throwing it away for this and she just started crying. Really? <laughs> yeah, she just started crying. What the hell are you doing with your life? Like, you know, um, now 12 years on, my mother brings down yesterday. She's in my gym. She, she cooks, she brings down brownies or, or lemon drizzle cake. It was yesterday. And she, she, she came to the UFC and lost her voice screaming for Connor and, and the guys. And, uh, now they couldn't be more proud of me. Like, um, but yeah. Was that a slow process? Turning uh, your parents onto this idea? Yeah, I think they, like, right away, I, I remember uh, my, I was uh, I was kind of giving private lessons to this, this man's kids. And the guy I was giving to, like, I had, a, I had quite a lot of respect for him. And I remember my dad was even trying to get him to talk me out of it, like, you know. Right. Um, but what I've sort of had that in my life, that whenever I've decided to do something, I'm pretty tunnel vision about it. And I wasn't going to be deterred. I... I I knew I, I had to do this, and um, so how long did it take them to come around? I guess you'd have to ask them, but <laughs> certainly in the la in January when I opened up, um, the, you know, my new facility, they were just blown away. Mm. Um, all the years I've had gyms, my mother's never come into them. They've always been cold, damp, uh, kind of dirty, <laughs> dirty gyms, and my mother's never walked in. Now in the new facility, my mum's in once a week, bringing up cakes and stuff <laughs> like that. And she just hangs out and. It's it's a really nice facility, the new gym. So I guess they're on site now. Something that struck me after the the night in Dublin was Carl Pendred was talking about his relationship with you and the loyalty that you've shown him, allowing him to stay rent free in your apartment. And I think that's something maybe that is a, a two way street. Am I right in saying over the years there's a certain close knit element to your community, if that's the right word, even to use it uh, to use here in that. I know at one stage you ended up having to move out to Rathcool, which was a lot further away from where most of your fighters were based, but everybody came with you. Is, is, is that, um, have I got a, the right read on that, that there's a certain loyalty, and if so, where does that come from? Yeah, um, I should say as well at this stage now, Carl Sander has led to me getting a lot of young guys messaging me, kind of live with you. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. uh. <laughs> 
So I'm engaged now. My fiance lives with me. Those days are done. Right. Uh, they missed the boat, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah. We we. What it was was uh, I don't know, like a perfect storm. Like a, a lot of guys kind of joined me at the same time. Um, and I I met some people that kind of helped me. Like I came from an engineering background, an academic background, and suddenly I'm a sports coach. Mm. I never did sports at a high level, and I certainly didn't do any coaching courses or anything like that. So I kind of met a few different people, and like I said, I got joined by a bunch of athletes like Connor and Cole and and um, Paddy and Ashling Ash, Ash, Ashling Daly and a few of these guys that, we, and we were all kind of obsessive about this. And like you said, when I went out to Raccoon, a lot of these guys were coming from city centre, and that's two long buses to get out there. And then trying to get home at, at, at night as well. So I guess it was just a culmination of factors together. Um, yeah, we are we are like a little little family. Um, we train together hard, and we you know we hang out and stuff like that. And but I, I think it was the love of the sport that was the common factor. And we were I, I don't know how it all happened or why it all happened, but it did. And to this day, we're still like um, you know uh, me and Connor. Uh, Connor's got a very analytical mind like mine. We break fights down by the second, and you know, when there's a UFC on, we'll be 2 a.m. texting each other like these essays. Of them. See, at minute one, minute 37, <laughs> why did he put his right foot there? Should he not put it? You know, we kind of had that mind set. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other guys are like this as well, like Paddy Hoolan. Almost every day comes into me, and he's wild eyed, and he's like, John, I had this dream. Check out this move, and he's, he's, he's dreams of techniques, and uh, we're all a bit like that, you know. And I, I've said it to fighters, and I say it to my new breed of fighters that being a world champion is easy. It just has to be your every waking moment. You have to be obsessive, or else you're second tier. You're going to be a, a mid-level fighter. Was that something you saw in Conor McGregor as soon as he walked into the gym? Does it happen that way? Um, well, Conor was extremely competitive the minute he walked into the gym. Uh, I remember. Uh, we were doing a wrestling drill, basically you're both standing, and you've, you have to try and get him down, and he's trying to get you down. And um, but when you get him down, it's over, and then the winner stays on. So I was doing it at the time, and Connor came out, and I took him down. But he kept going; he kept going kind of crazy. And, and I said, "And I said, hold on there, now it's over." I said, "See the moment when your back hit the mat, it was done." And he kind of just smiled. And then I remember like a few months later, we're doing the same drill and he put me down. Right. And he goes, see, when your back hit the mat, <laughs> it was over. You know, so. But right, right from the start, he was extremely competitive. And um, um, he, he, he loved it as well. He loved the sparring and he loved learning. And, and he just he had that kind of approach. Was he sure of himself or was he uh, a, a young lad just looking for a little bit of direction, looking for... A way, yeah, I mean, a way to same, make an same again. Like uh, there was back then, were, there were, I was never thinking back then. Like the UFC wasn't actually that big back. It wasn't. It's in the last kind of, I guess, four years. The UFC's really gone, you know, mainstream as they say. Yeah. We're going back nine years here. So you know, it's a couple of shows a year in the states. I think it's. I think they did used to do something like ten shows a year, if that. Now it's two shows a month around the world. Back then, it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, well, if we get good, we can go to UFC and make money at this. It was just, if we get good, I can be him on Thursday night, and then I'll be him on Tuesday night. You know, that, that was the mentality. And so with Conor, he just, he just enjoyed it. He just enjoyed fighting. I, I don't know what he was doing outside the gym. I didn't really have any contact with him outside the gym. Um, but yeah, we're just all training away, and then it came about. 
He's three UFC fights now uh, into his career. I mean, the impact he, he's made has been staggering. Um, the tickets that he sold, the, the speed at which they sold out uh, a few weeks back, the viewing figures, the reaction just on online and all the rest of it, a book deal now as well. Um, <laughs> you're, you're laughing at that. Uh, just the whole thing. The whole, the whole like I, I remember, like uh, I only we were in, in Portugal, and you know you're only on Wi-Fi intermittently. So I'm on Wi-Fi and I'm just scrolling through a few things, and he's shaking hands with this guy. Conor McGregor signs a book deal. <laughs> I was like, I texted him, was it a coloring book? But I just, I thought it was, it's just bizarre to me, just considering how well I know him, and you know, we come up through this together, and then he's, he's got a book coming out. Like, come yeah. on. Like, it's all a bit mad. You know? As a coach, do you have to be wary of that? Because your chief job is to get him performing uh, in the ring or in the octagon. Are you at all concerned about so much happening so quickly in terms of the fame that he has? Well, you know, I get asked this quite a bit as well. And, and I've all, I'm, I'm, because I came from engineering and I'm, I'm also involved in like, I, I like reading about skeptical stuff. And, you know, kind of gives me a hard time about this. I, I question everything. And I'm an evidence-based guy. So what's the evidence? How did he do July 19th? Well, brilliantly, yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. Best you've ever seen him. So what he's doing seems to be producing those results. Do it more. I want m- more book deals, more m- to throw a movie deal in there. Do whatever you want, because it's only making him get better. He seems to be this. If you, I, I can, uh, you know, the latest Spider-Man movie, the guy when he holds onto electricity, it just makes him more powerful. That's that's how this media stuff seems to be affecting Connor. It's only making him more obsessive. Is that a bubble though, or is that something that can burst? Say he loses a fight. Say he loses this next fight at the end of I September. I won't say that. Well, you won't say that. I'll put out a hypothetical situation, that he, or he loses the next fight after that, or something happens that punctures that. It, it, you 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 don't think about it in that in that kind of way. No, no, no it don't. It's just not a thought we entertain. Mm. Like what will be, will be. You know, we roll the dice, and what will be, will be. But no, I don't think it's a good mindset to have either. That to start thinking of a what if, and, and being a negative, because then you're going to start maybe aim going towards that negative. Like, uh, I got it. it we, have a, we have a sports coach in my gym. Um, a, a, sorry, a, a sports psychologist, uh, David Mullins, a really good guy. And he, he pointed out something I actually do quite naturally, but it's a very good tactic to have. Now, let's say you've got two guys fighting, and Connor, for example, and in a lot of his fights, I want him to stay on his feet. I don't want him to get taken down. Now, I could shout out, don't go to the ground, or I can say, stay on your feet. Well, they, they both are saying the same thing, but one is a negative. Don't go to the ground. Yeah. And you, you can drop the don't, and you just hear go to the ground. You know, So there's, there's different ways of approaching sport, and I think there's different ways of approaching life, and, and I'm only going to see the positive. Yeah. And uh, like I said, so far, in the, the lead-up to July 19, trust me, every interview is like, you know, he hasn't been in there since August. He's hyping himself up, something like, what if he fails? Well, this is going to be some fall, and... And, you know, is he ever in the gym training? Because all I ever seem to do is see him on Twitter and doing these public appearances. And all I could do was say, well, let's see what happens July 19th. I suppose the evidence would, would have to come from other sports people's career. And if you look through it, you could find guys who maybe got hyped up a little too much. Um, I know certainly his next opponent is talking a little bit about this, saying that he's been built up into a bit of a giant uh, Jeff Wagenheim is a Sports Illustrated uh, MMA writer. Says he's been talking and talking and talking. Now we get a chance to find out if he's a fighter as well as a talker. Is is the problem maybe that the amazing success that he's had and the ability to market himself has come a little bit faster than his actual 
a career graph that he hasn't fought the best guys yet and yet he's being talked about as a top guy. I can tell you, like, he's going to blow through Dustin in September and in the lead up to his next fight, they'll say, well, Dustin wasn't on form and, and there's always a new guy. Look, look at John Jones, uh, uh, light heavyweight champion. He's m- maybe right now the greatest fighter in the world. He, he, be, he tends to win the fights and whatever you're best at, he'll fight you that and still win. And you'll see the critics the next day. Oh, well, that guy had a sore elbow that day. And, but there's a new guy coming along. So there's always a new guy. And, and, I, and thankfully so. The, you know, fight business is slightly like show business. If Connor doesn't have the antagonist, well, then who's going to buy tickets? Um, but for me, uh, professional fighting is about one thing and one thing only. And that's make as much money as fast as possible. Because you're risking your health. You're risking your brain. Uh, martial arts is a lifetime activity. You can train at a low pace and it's very good for your body and it's, it's good for your, your health and it's good for your ego. keeps everything in check, but you're not taking full force blows to the head. But professional fighting is taking full force blows to the head and it's something I'm very aware of and very conscious of. And I want my fighters to make a lot of money as quick as possible and then get out. So with Connor, no one's doing, it. No one's doing that better. Yeah. He's making a lot of money very, very fast um, and he's getting hyped up very, very quick so his his pay's going up very, very quick. Great. So get his couple of fights in, get a few belts, and then get the hell out. We interviewed him last summer, and I asked him about whether or not he was motivated by fame. And he said, uh, in typical no-nonsense Conor McGregor style, he said, no, the fame isn't what it's about, that he's two motivations. And he said one of them is that he loves unarmed combat, and he's fascinated by self-defense. That's away from competition. And in competition, he said, it's about the money. It's what you're saying there. It's just about about earning the money. And doing that as quickly as possible. Have you noticed any change? Is that still how, after this, has, has he maintained the same sort of focus as his career has started to go through the it's only It's only getting more. Increasing. It's only getting more laser, uh, laser point. Um, you know, he, like right away after his fight, I mean, he, that night, you know, that's a big night for him. And he's messaging me at 1 a.m. Did you think I did this wrong? What, what should I, should I have done this? What do you think the other fights in the card? You know, that's it's all he does. Like he said, he'd be watching a movie, and ten minutes into the movie, he's gone. He's drifting off, going over sequences in his head. And you know, I'm a similar person. Um, but no, the, the the more he's getting outside the cage, it's only making him more. He's he's enjoying that, and he's seeing like, well, the more I do this, and the better I do it, the more I get at that. Yeah. So it's just making him even get more obsessed about does it. Does UFC John involve itself in? his marketing strategy is this does it all come from his own head he's clearly s- such a natural performer in front of the media is that all him or is there a certain sense of trying to build particular personalities within that organization um like would they be telling them what to say kind of thing yeah or? not necessarily everything to say but are there certain characteristics that they want him to show or do they want to build him into a certain type of character would they advise him how to mark himself no like i've seen it there's uh, joe silva's uh, famous matchmaker um, for the UFC he's been around it since the beginning and uh, there's a little interview with him and there's someone brought up you know the way Connor's personality and how he's hyping fights and he said listen it's not like somebody having a loud mouth and then can also fight I mean that Muhammad Ali started that it's not like we don't want someone like that but they just don't come along that often maybe they can do one or the other good fighting but not much personality or great personality can't, can't really fight he is that rare individual that, can, that has both. Um, but no, we certainly don't get any direction from them or, or do, don't say this or do say that. It's 
I think they just let him off in his reins and away yeah. he goes. It's a funny, it's a clearly very successful business model that they have, but it's funny when you look at the, f- it, they put on their own events, they do their own interviews afterwards, so it's all very much involved, it's very much around hyping up their own product, which has been very successful. But it, does it stop at maybe a critical analysis being done of how ready the fighters are for certain stages of their career, do you think? Um, well, I mean, you, you have, like, the UFC is a big machine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people working there. Um, uh, like the, the matchmaker that I would deal with more regularly is a guy called Sean Shelby, and he told me when he started, there was it was eight people in a room about this size, and uh, they had eight or nine shows a year. Now it's over two hundred people, offices all over the world, and and two shows a month sometimes. They they have a f- complete office for all the PR and media and marketing stuff, but they still have their matchmakers. You know, Sean Shelby and Joe Silva, and, you know, I'd be talking with them regular enough about the path for this guy. So they would just very much talk to you, as, you know, from a, from a matchmaker or a trainer. And, of course, they're talking to the other guy's trainer, and, you know, they're making the matches that way. And then whatever we decide, then the media and PR get behind and, and build up, as is their job. But it's not like those guys would be telling the matchmakers, hey, this looks good because, you know, it'll lead them to do this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, the way Connor start. He wants the belt already, and sometimes they might the matchmaker might go on to me and say, "Is he serious? Like, does he really want to do this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it." Like, you know? when, when you talk about the telling the fighters to get in, make their money, and get out, do they all listen to that? Do you think that that message gets through? Is that how most fighters view it, or do they think I'm going to have a long, long career in this? Um, well, I guess you're going to have to ask me in a few years because this is my first yeah, time doing it. It's all quite early. You know, in the game. It's all it's all new to me as well. Um, he, this is the first wave of fighters. Like we've been at this, that that group of guys have been at it seven, eight, nine years, and this is the first time they've ever made money. You know, when you're fighting on other shows around Ireland and Europe, you're not making any money, like nothing. You know, a couple of hundred euros or something, it wouldn't pay for your bus fare to get to the gym and back for the weeks and months that you put into it. Um, but I do have a very good relationship with all my fighters, and I do think they take. Um, you know, we also we're, we're very lucky that um, we're involved with a guy called uh, Professor Dan Healy who's head of neurology at Beaumont and all my guys go to him for checkups and and he's actually training now and he does some private lessons in the gym and and, and um, but he's always hammering the point home as well and about, about the dangers of head trauma and you know we're, we're, we're heavily involved with all that so it's, it's a topic I'm educating myself on as well and um, yeah I guess in a couple of years time I'll, I'll come back to you. Yeah is that an element that you do you find it sometimes quite trying, the analysis of the sport, particularly with people who have just come to it? A lot of people just focus on the violent element of it, which, of course, exists. It is a combat sport. Is it something that you like to educate people on? Uh, yeah, I always enjoy doing those interviews. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I've, I've, I've found out that there's, there's two types of people that are negative about this. One, they just don't like fighting. Doesn't matter what it is, and uh, at that stage, you've got to shake hands and walk away. Because how am I going to change some sixty-year-old lady's opinion that she just hates the idea of two guys fighting? You know, uh, there's there. But the only comeback I can have on that is that we're in a free society. Uh, there's uh, sports I don't like. I don't like looking at undersized men whipping horses, but that's a very popular entertainment for some people. Um, I don't like car racing. I think it's ridiculous that we're running out of oil and people use it to watch cars going around in circles very quickly. But again, some people enjoy that. And in this, two guys are highly trained and they both enjoy punching each other. Let them at it, you know. Um, and then you've got guys who are just um, 
who are maybe misinformed. They, they think it's dangerous. They think that as compared with other sports, it ranks up there. It's not in the top 10 of dangerous sports. You know, if you're riding around on a motorcycle 200 miles an hour around the track, you make a small move, you're you're smeared across the, the floor. In rugby, people are getting the necks broken and, and, and so on. So, you know, then it just becomes educating them on that. And they, 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 usually they're quite surprised when they hear it's not, it's nowhere near in, in terms of dangerous sports. So my, my comeback would be if you're genuinely trying to get a sport banned or you're against a sport because it's dangerous, well, then MMA shouldn't even be on your radar. You should be out standing outside equestrian centres and water sports, motorsports, uh, rugby, American football, these are the sports that people are getting traumatic injuries week in, week out. Yeah, I guess with UFC, it's uh, similar to the argument against boxing over the years that there's an intent to inflict hurt on the opponent. It's a different kind of... Well, then, then that's the second category. You just don't enjoy the idea of fighting because people are trying to hit each other. Turn her off. John, one other person that you've been in, involved in who I guess primarily wouldn't be um, known in, in relation to this kind of thing, but entered your gym a number of years ago as Kieran McGinney. Um I guess you would have had some pretty interesting conversations with him in terms of uh, getting the most out of your body and your mind. Yeah, um, I would definitely list him as one of my mentors, someone I looked up to. Um, like I said earlier on, I didn't come from high-level sports. Um, obviously, Kieran did. And it was great to have his knowledge and experience to be able to lean on in times of like motivating people and, and getting the best out of best out of training sessions and just even planning training sessions and stuff like that so yeah we've had a lot of uh we've had a, a lot of back and forwards and I, I've done a little bit with his teams as well I've coached the uh, Kildare team uh the compromise rules team that went over and and uh won a lot of games in yeah. Australia so it's been a good relationship did he just land in the gym one day yeah um I, I I'm embarrassed to say I, I didn't follow GEA, I knew nothing about it, and this this guy rang the gym and asked for a private lesson. I walk in, I look over, and there's this, like, I could tell right away he's an athlete. He's this big, strong guy. And I have this particular drill I do with people. I'm not the biggest guy, so if I'm, if I'm going with someone who's really big and strong, there's this drill I do, and if you haven't done it, a minute and a half in, you're going to be tired. 20 minutes in, he was grunting and snarling and screaming at me and headbutting me and throwing me around. And, <laughs> and that's, we've, we've had that relationship now for six, seven years. And we'll, we, he, uh, we kind of like text message her and Saturday night, well, where are you, you going to be there on Monday? And I'll see you there on Monday. And it's just, there's an underlying line of violence between the two of us. But, uh, he but, has the but competitive brothers. instinct that you talked about with, um, with Conor McGregor, I guess. That's, that's a man that's on fire. And, and to this day, I mean, he's, I, I don't. If you both sat down with a bottle of water, he's going to want to finish it first, you know, and then tell you why he finished it first and why you're only second, and you know, and you know, just, just, I've just so many stories in the gym. Um, when, when me and Kieran spar, usually the gym stops to watch because it's two bulls flying across the, <laughs> flying across the mat at each other. Like we'll go at it hard, but you know, it's always at the end, shake hands and um, and talk about well, what could we have done better? And when I've brought out his team, um, you know, obviously Kieran now is a little bit older than he'd like to believe probably and you know it's a group of 20 year olds coming out and I'd be doing drills and exercises with them he has to do it with them he has to beat everybody at it do it faster and stronger and better than everyone and uh, then shout it down but he's he's an inspirational character I just want to take it back to you talked about your love of teaching these guys there's a nice this isn't so much about teaching but there's a lovely moment in the documentary when um, Connor's fighting in Boston it could have been after the second round maybe 
and you asked him, does he need any water? And he, he almost reluctantly said, he clearly did want some water, but he was saying, yeah, I'll have a small bit. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really, I'm feeling good. And you just, it was just the calmness with which you two talked to each other. You just said to him, yeah, I don't know, you're, you're looking great out there. Is it? I said you look beautiful. You look beautiful. <laughs> he, maybe he prefers I heard that, that to look back great. to me. <laughs> <laughs> but is that the kind of, uh, I was amazed at the calmness, I guess. I mean, of, of course you have to be calm. You're trying to give very clear instructions and presumably only a few instructions without trying to clutter the guy's heads but I was just was quite struck by that 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 moment of um a very normal moment in the middle of what's kind of a, a mad setup yeah um it's not something that happened overnight you know I remember my first few times cornering people and you've fallen over bottles spilling water and shouting at the guy and you know it's it's a skill like anything else it takes practice I've probably cornered over a thousand fights now and at this stage to be honest it's like when I'm cornering corner that's cornering Connor <laughs> say that 10 times um, it's one of the calmest I am because when he's sparring I'm, I'm a bit on edge because he his technique is so good he won't mean it but he can he can drop people very easily but when he's in a f- competitive fight like that I'm actually most relaxed because I don't have to worry about his opponent in fact the more he does for his opponent the better it's on the referee um, I, I honestly see him as being so far ahead of everybody it's just never going to be a worry for me it's just like I wonder how he'll win. What's he going to do this time? Because some of the kicks he does and some of the movements he does, it's like, oh, I hadn't seen that before. You know, that's working out on money. That looks interesting. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm always very calm. That's an incredibly positive attitude and you've come a long way. Congratulations, John. Listen, it's great to have you in. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Air dryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. I thought that he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. There is a hugely positive person, John Cavan. I think you get a sense of uh, sort of an insight into what he brings to the people who he's involved with and, and to the fighters. I was quite struck. It's funny about the when we were speaking about the amount of hype around McGregor and how John views that in a sporting sense, I'd always just get a small bit uneasy that a guy gets blown up before actually reaching the top. But I did understand John's point about the hype creating a scenario where his fighter can make money quickly and get out of the game early. It's a common sense view of a sport like, like boxing. It's something that's, it rarely happens in boxing. Everybody always has said over the years, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll fight, I'll get out. But it doesn't always happen. So hopefully, as John says, he doesn't know yet whether the message is getting home because he's only starting out UFC-wise with these guys. So we'll see if that actually if it actually does happen. But it's the very opposite of how a lot of team sports are viewed because there's almost an industry built around the idea of keeping lads' feet on the ground when it mm. comes to GAA or football. Yeah, I mean, that, that's rule number one, effectively. If you've won, you have to park that win. You can't you can't uh, uh, languish on that win. You can't linger on that win. You have to forget about it and move on to the next game. Whereas with this, it's constantly talk about the wins, constantly uh, build yourself up to be something that uh, to 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 be the winner, to to be like the greatest thing in the world. Um, and it, you know, it, it is it's nearly counterintuitive. Now, maybe in a weird kind of way, it's easier with an individual. You know, it works for for Connor. So McGregor can do can do that, yeah. and he's he's he can handle that. I mean, if if you're trying to handle the egos of twenty people in a in a soccer squad, thirty people in a GA squad, maybe 
maybe that's more difficult. Maybe the, there are three or four uh, people in, in that team, in that squad, who actually start believing it and, and don't and get lazy with it. People also have a choice in whether or not... I was struck by some of the comments around the time uh, of the fight. Uh, it was as though <laughs> McGregor was the second coming of Muhammad Ali, despite the fact he was beating a very inferior opponent who McGregor himself said... The style of, of Brandau suited him very well and he was a replacement. He wasn't the first choice of a fighter. So I was quite struck by that. But then again, you can just, I can ignore that if I want. I can make my own judgments on McGregor based on what he does in his career. And as John said, if people don't like the sport, if they have an issue with the violence of it or anything like that, just they don't have to watch it. Mm. And that's sometimes something that gets a little bit lost yeah. because something happens like that that's so big. But I was very taken also, Murph, by the, the McGinney dynamic there. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds pretty... There's the most... Kieran McGinney is an, an intense man. I think that's mm. certainly the picture we would have of him. Nothing that John has told us there would puncture our idea of Kieran McGinney as quite an intense <laughs> competitor. Yeah, uh, and I mean, the, there, there's nearly... It's it's nearly... It's odd to be talking to, to John about McGinney because McGinney's already done it. Like, he's a huge sporting success in GA and the MMA is an adjunct... You know, like when the story of Kieran McGinney is written, you know, it's going to be a GA story. It's not going to be a, a, a story based around the MMA or anything like it. But at the same time, he's still a guy that people are unbelievably fascinated by for whatever reason. And I think in ways the the continuing growth of MMA means that maybe we'll be less fascinated by McGinney than we might have been three or four years ago. But I mean, when, he, when McGinney retired he immediately went looking for another challenge. He found it in MMA, which, you know, when he retired, was a thing that we all needed to be told was, what what it was. We didn't know what it was. And we had this idea that, right, well, it's Kieran McGinney. There's literally no telling how intense and how daft this thing could actually be. Um, now that we have a better understanding of what MMA is, then maybe uh, in a weird kind of way, it kind of takes some of the mystery away from just uh, from uh, from McGinney but at the same time he's just an endlessly fascinating character it's, 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 he's a guy who we're all just fascinated by John O'Brien did a very good piece in Sunday Independent in 2012 about McGinney if you want to read up further on that element of it about his uh, how he took to MMA how he got involved and what he gets out of it um, so if you want to have a look at that I'll tweet a link to it later on anyway but that's pretty much it from us great to have John Kavanagh in studio there and always good to talk to Oshin and Anthony looking forward to those games and even more particularly with all the juicy or not so juicy pre-match quotes Murph thank you very much thank you Will. thanks for listening check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcast have a listen to some of the other great podcasts out there you can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains we'll talk to you again a little bit later on with uh, there, our Second Captains football podcast thank you Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.